So folks, today we're not going to be waiting around in the kiddie pool. We're going to be in the deep end of the pool. And what I mean by that is we're getting head into some really deep theology today. That's what this passage includes. Uh, it's not for the, uh, the faint of heart. You're going to have to use your brain today. You're going to have to think, and it's not going to be easy. Um, I'm just warning you ahead of time. <laughs> this, is, this is a passage that's not only difficult to understand, but it's also difficult to accept once you understand it. Okay, We're going to be talking about the doctrine of original sin, two representatives, Adam and Christ. So that's it. So let's go ahead and read it, first of all, Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to, I'm going to bite off this big section, 12 to 21. And we're not going to look at every single nuance in the passage, but we are going to look at the major themes that emanate from it. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless... Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand... The judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, we pray right now that you would help us to understand what you are communicating in this passage. Give me the ability, Lord, to make things clear so people can see their eyes will be open. They'll embrace the truth that you've given to us so many hundreds of years ago in the pages of Holy Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that we would see the impact that these words have on our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 5, 12 to 21 is one of the most theologically important passages in all of the Bible. Not only that, it's probably the clearest and most comprehensive teaching on original sin in all of the Bible. There's no other place in the Bible that I know of that takes such a lengthy treatment and talks about Adam's original sin and how that has an impact on the human race as this one. This is a passage that talks about Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. It's one of the most difficult passages to understand and embrace, but once you do, it will change your perspective of how God deals with the world, this fallen world of sinners. Now, we need to understand Paul's flow of thought. So we're going to go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to quickly catch you up on what's happening. Okay, The first five chapters of the book of Romans deal with justification. Chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, is our need for justification. We're sinners. We are condemned by a holy God. We have no excuse, and we're under his wrath. So we there is a tremendous need that we would be justified or made right, declared righteous through the work of Christ. Then in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, we have an explanation of justification. He explains it. He shows how it works, how it works with redemption and with justification and with 
um, propitiation, and he puts the pieces together for us in that section. And then in chapter 4, he illustrates justification in the person of Abraham. And he shows us how Abraham was justified through faith alone hundreds of years before Christ was ever born. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which is the section we've just been working through, we have the fruits of justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. Bang, bang, bang. He starts listing off what's true about us now that we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have a standing in grace. We have hope of the glory of God. And then to help us understand this amazing love of God that would do all this for us, he goes on from verses 6 through 11 to talk about the riches of God's love the height and the depth of the love of Christ where he would come to die, not for good people or for righteous people, but for sinners, enemies, ungodly people. Well, that brings us to verse 12. And here we have the basis for justification. If you've ever wondered, what is the foundation? What's the basis upon this truth of justification is built? What's it laid on? We have that here in this section. And we're not going to go through each verse verse by verse as we normally do, because I want you to see the big picture all at once today. And we wouldn't have time. It would take about three or four hours to do that. So we're not going to do that. We're going to take three themes that come out of this passage, and we're going to look at each one of those themes. And those themes are, there's two different representatives, there's two different responses, and there's two different results that I want you to see. Now, first of all, let's take a look at the two different representatives. What we need to understand right off the bat is that this section is not about you and me. It's about two men. And I hope you caught that when we were reading through it. Who are the two men we're talking about here? Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. In verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is a type, there's our first man, Adam, who is a type, and then our second man, of him who was to come. There's our second man. Now, who is him who was to come? Jesus Christ. Verse 15 explains that. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And as we go through this section, Paul's going to compare and contrast both men. He'll put Adam on the right, he'll put Christ on the left, and he'll show how they compare and how they contrast. So let's take a look, first of all, on an expression that keeps occurring throughout this passage. And the expression is, one man. He keeps talking about one man over and over. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Or verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Or verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Or verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You see his emphasis? One man, one man, one man. He's not talking about you individually. He's talking about one man. And he starts off with the man, Adam, who's the father of the human race. But then he also uses that expression when he comes to Christ. Look at verse 15. He talks about the one man, Jesus Christ. Or verse 17, the one, Jesus Christ. Or verse 19, the one. <laughs> so again and again, we're introduced to Adam, the one man, and Jesus Christ, the one man. Now notice in verse 14 that he says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. A type is something that in the Old Testament that prefigures and foreshadows something that's going to take place in the New Testament. It's a picture. I'll give you an example. There's, there's dozens of these types that you can find in the Old Testament, but one that we're very familiar with is the type of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was taken on a particular night. It was slain. Its blood was drained into a basin, 
And then the people of Israel would take a branch of hyssop and dip it in that basin of blood and smear it and sprinkle it on the lintel and doorposts of their house. And then they went inside the house and remained there overnight because the destroying angel was coming through that night. And when that destroying angel saw the blood over the door of a house, he passed over. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. He passed over and he didn't bring God's judgment upon that household. He didn't smite the firstborn. But if any house didn't have the blood over the doors, the firstborn child, the firstborn son would be killed. Well, likewise, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. The Passover lamb was a picture in the Old Testament of this glorious reality in the new of Jesus Christ being the one who would take away the wrath of God and deliver us from eternal death through his sacrifice. Do you see? Now, we're told in verse 14 that Adam is a type of Christ. He was somebody in the Old Testament that looked forward to someone who was to come in the New Testament. This is where it gets a little confusing because we expect a type to be identical to the anti-type or the one it's foreshadowing. But in the case of Adam, there are certain resemblances, but there's also a lot of contrast too. And we're going to look at each one of those contrasts in just a minute. So the similarities are that each of these persons, Adam and Christ, are representatives of a people. They stand in an official capacity as public persons representing a people group that are in them, that are united to them. Adam represents all mankind. Christ represents those who trust him, believers. But, and I, I'll mention this as well. Each of the things that that person accomplishes is applied now to the people they represent. So we're going to see that Adam brought in sin, condemnation, and death. And those qualities are passed on to all of the people that he represents. Jesus Christ brings in justification and life, and that is passed on to all those people that Jesus represents. So they're similar in that regard. They represent a people, they pass on what they accomplish to the people they represent, but the contrast comes in that the things they pass on to those people are very different from one another. So here we have the two different representatives laid out for us in this passage. Adam and Christ. Now let's look at the responses that each of these persons made. And when I talk about responses, I'm talking about the response that they made to the temptations that were brought into their life. Both Adam and Christ were tempted. Adam was tempted because he wanted to eat of a particular tree that God had forbidden him to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gave him a positive or a negative command, do not eat of this particular tree. Eat any other tree you want to, but not of this tree. So that was a negative command. In the case of Jesus, there was a positive command. God the Father sent the Son into the world to seek and to save the lost and to lay down his life a ransom for many. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was tempted not to do that because of the horrific, agonizing suffering that it was going to entail for him to have to go through that. Do you see, both of them had temptations. Jesus was also tempted in the, in the, um, in the wilderness as he embarked on his ministry for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil came to him and tempted him specifically. So there's two different responses to temptation. In Adam's temptation, he said, not your will, but mine be done. And in Jesus' temptation, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus conquered and triumphed where Adam fell. So really, all of history can be summed up in two different trees that were in two different gardens, if you think about it. The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in the Garden of Eden, that's where the first one took place. And then the cross, that second tree, within the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was tempted. God forbade the first man to eat of that first tree. 
But God commanded the last Adam, Jesus Christ, to embrace the second tree, the tree of suffering. When Adam ate from the first tree, it brought condemnation and death into the human race. When Jesus Christ embraced the cross, the second tree, it brought justification and life into the human race. When Adam ate from the first tree, he lost paradise. He was banished from paradise. But when Jesus embraced that second tree, he gained paradise for all those who are in him. So let's think about Adam's response to temptation. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then verse 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So in verse 12, it says what he did was sin. In verse 14, it says what he did was, uh, well, he, it was an offense. It's difficult to put that into words. But what he did is called sin. It's called an offense. And then in verse 15, 17, and 18, it's called the transgression. That's what it's called most often in this passage, the transgression. And then in verse 19, it's called disobedience. Sin, offense, transgression, disobedience. Sin. That word means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. So if you went out with your bow and arrow and you shot at that target, it doesn't matter if you missed it by 100 feet or by an inch. If you didn't hit the bullseye, you sinned. You missed the mark. Adam missed the mark. Jesus hit the bullseye. Okay, it's also called an offense. What he did was an offense. Well, an offense to who? To God. This shows us how God feels about human sin. It's offensive. It's repugnant to his holy nature. Just as we're offended by what people do, God is offended by what we do. Our sin. It's also called a transgression. And I was comparing Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 5. And I interestingly, I found out that the word trespass is used in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. Transgression is used in verse 5. And in both places, we're told that we were dead in our trespasses or dead in our transgressions. So a trespass and a transgression is the same thing in the mind of the Apostle Paul. They're just synonyms for the same thing. So when it says that Adam committed this transgression, it meant that Adam trespassed. And that's an easy word for us to understand. Because when I was growing up, my dad would take us swimming and rock collecting and stuff like that. And there was always these no trespassing signs. And being disobedient kids back then, we just hop over the fence and go collect our rocks, right? But a no trespassing sign means that you're not supposed to go across that fence line. Stop here. Don't enter, right? So not only does God have this bullseye we're supposed to hit, and none of us do, not only is our sin offensive to him, but he has these guardrails that he set up, and he says, do not pass that line. It's like drawing a, a line in the sand and saying, don't cross it. And all of us do. That's a transgression. That's a trespass. And the fourth word he uses is disobedience. That word simply means defiant disregard for God's authority. God is the authority, and when we blatantly decide to disobey him, we are defiantly disregarding that authority in our lives. Adam refused to comply with God's command, and it's wonderful to see the contrast between the two. Adam missed the bullseye by 100 yards. Jesus hit it every single time. Adam's action was an offense to God. Jesus' whole life was pleasing in the Father's sight. Adam went across that line that God has established. Jesus always kept within the bounds of God's law. Always. Never trespassing. Adam disobeyed, whereas Jesus obeyed. So you see the two different responses of these two different men who mark out the representatives of the human race. Now let's think about Jesus' temptations for just a moment. He was tempted over 40 days in the wilderness. He had nothing to eat. The devil came to him and began to tempt him with various things. And the Bible says that he was able to conquer Satan because he kept saying, it is written, it is written, 
It is written. And he took the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and kept jabbing at the devil until he had conquered him. So he conquered him there in the wilderness. But then the devil wasn't, wasn't done with him. He kept working on him. And the most serious temptation that Jesus ever felt was that one in Gethsemane, where the Bible says that he was crying out to God in prayer and agony uh, to the point of death. It, it, his sweat was dropping, as it were, like great drops of blood. And, and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, cup, what cup? I didn't, I didn't read about any cup there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's using figurative language to talk about the cup of the cross, the sufferings he was about to face, the cup of wrath that he was going to have to go through as the Holy Son of God. But our sins imputed to him. So he now, with our sins on him as sort of the scapegoat, he's facing the wrath of a holy God against all of these offenses and disobediences and sin and transgressions before the Father. And he's shrinking in his humanness. He doesn't want to do it. But how did he win this temptation? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He submitted in that hour to the Father's will. No matter how horrific and agonizing the sufferings were going to be, he submitted and said, if there's no other way, Father, let it be. Let your will be done. So the first Adam failed miserably. The second Adam, the last man, succeeded and triumphed victoriously over his temptations. Now, let's look at the two different results. The first point of, of truth I want to bring to you is that Adam brought condemnation and death, death to all those that were united to him. I said before that Adam and Jesus are public persons. It's similar to the president of a country. Back in 1941, Franklin Roosevelt declared war against Japan. When he did that, he acted as a public person. He was acting in an official capacity representing the people of the United States. And when he said, I have declared war against Japan, that meant every member of the United States was now at war with Japan. And it really didn't matter if you agreed with his decision to go to war with Japan. It didn't matter. You were at war with Japan whether you agreed or not, because your representative had acted on your behalf. So here we have Adam standing as a public person. And in 1 Corinthians 15.22, the Bible says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now think about that. In Adam, in Christ. Those words, in, that speaks of union. All those who are united to Adam will die. All those who are united to Christ will live. So here we, we're entering into this arena where we're understanding this idea of representation. Jesus and Adam are representative heads over different people that they, that they both represent. In a very real sense, there's really only two men in history. As God looks down on the world, yes, he sees individuals, but in another sense, there are really only two people who have ever lived, Adam and Christ. And every single person who has ever lived is united to one or the other. And who you are united to will determine your eternal destiny. You must get out of Adam and you must get into Christ. If you die outside of Christ, you will be damned. The condemnation that is yours will be upon you for all eternity. But if you find yourself in Christ when you die, you will enter into his eternal kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What I want you to see here, though, is at the end of verse 12, in my Bible, there's a dash. I don't know if yours has a dash at the end of verse 12. There's a reason they put it there. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, dash. Then verse 13 and 14 go off on a tangent, and he doesn't finish his sentence. We expect him to say something like, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into, into the world, even so through another man, righteousness and life enter into the world. 
But Paul doesn't say that. And there's a reason he doesn't. It's because of the last two words of verse 12. And those words are, all sinned. And he knows people are apt to misunderstand him. So he can't just finish his sentence because he doesn't want people to misunderstand what he's just said. So he goes on in verse 13 and 14 to explain what it means that all sinned. Now, when I was a young Christian, I would read this and think, oh, all sin. That means because I committed individual acts of sin, therefore, I'm going to receive the sentence of death. But that's not what Paul means. And we know that because he explains himself in the next two verses. So let's look at it. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, how did all men sin? Well, let me explain, Paul says. For until the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type who was to come. Now this, let's try to unravel this. It, it, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. Okay, from Adam until Moses, Paul says sin was in the world. How do we know sin was in the world between Adam and Moses? Because people were dying. And death is the result of sin. But he says Sin is not imputed when there is no law. And there was no law from Adam until Moses. Right? There's no law there. It's like if I get into Debbie's beautiful red car and I get on the freeway and I get it up to 120 miles an hour and I'm just cruising along, passing everybody like they're standing still. It's not going to be long before I'm going to see a highway patrolman in the red and blue lights cruising up on me, and he's going to give me a ticket. Now, why will I get a ticket? I broke the law. But if I take the same beautiful red car over to Germany, and I drive on the Autobahn, and I go 120 miles an hour, no ticket. How come? You better stay in the right-hand lane. <laughs> yeah. But there's no ticket because there's no, there's, no, there's no law over there. There's no speed law. So you can go as fast as you want, and you can't get a ticket. He's saying here, between Adam and Moses, you can't get a ticket because there's no law to break. Sin isn't imputed when there's no law, and there wasn't any law during that period of time. If that's true, how come people keep on dying from Adam until Moses? If they, if God's not imputing sin to them because they're not breaking a law, why do they keep on dying? And every single one of them dies. We read that in the book of Genesis. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. His son lived so many years, and then he died, 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 died. Wait a minute. If sin is not being imputed because there's no law to break, how come all these people are dying? Even infants who can't even understand anything about a revelation from God, or even infants died during that period of time. They had to have died during the flood. So how is this happening? Why would people die if their sin is not being imputed to them, and if death is a result of sin? It's because they sinned in Adam. That's his whole point here. When Adam sinned, that original sin was communicated to all of those that he represented. All those who are united to Adam receive what he did, because he stood as a public person, not as just one random individual, but as like the president of a country. When he acted, he acted on behalf of everyone who had come forth from his loins. So that's why he goes off on this tangent in verses 13 and 14. He wants to make it crystal clear that when he says, because all sinned, he doesn't mean all committed individual acts of sin. He means that all sinned when Adam sinned. Adam's sin is put to their account. Now, why is that important? It's because if we understand this passage to be teaching that people die because they commit individual acts of sin, then we're also going to run to the conclusion that people will earn eternal life by individual acts of righteousness. And that is not the way it works. Damnation comes to people on the very same principle as salvation. Representation. Who are you united to? Who represents you? That's going to make all the difference in your eternal, in your eternal destiny. 
Now, is it is this passage really teaching that Adam's sin is put to the account of every person descended from Adam? Let's just read verses and just allow the Bible to, to talk to us. And let's see if this sounds clear or if this is confusing. Okay, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. If by the transgression of the one, the many died. Does that sound clear? Okay, let's read verse 16. The judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. One transgression. Verse 17. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18. As through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's probably the clearest one I could find in the whole chapter. So plain that it's really hard to try to figure it. You know, people want, don't like this doctrine. And so they've come up with many various alternative interpretations. But let's just, what does the Bible naturally and plainly state here? As through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Or verse 19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In 1690, the colonists here in America, they wrote a primer for the kids because they wanted to educate their children. And so it was a book, there was wood cuttings in it, and it was to teach them their ABCs. And the very first page had a letter to help them understand uh, the letter A. A for Adam. And this is what it said. In Adam's fall, we send all. And so these early colonists were trying to teach their children the ABCs, and so they chose the doctrine of original sin. And it's interesting because many adults don't understand this teaching, but back then they were wanting to make sure every five-year-old child understood that they had sinned in Adam, and they had better flee to another representative who could save them from the fallenness that they'd received from their first father. Now you say, Brian, that seems totally unfair for God to do that. How can God judge me for what somebody else did? That's not fair. How can God deal with the whole human race through two representatives instead of each person individually? Well, think about it this way. Adam was the bus driver, and we were all in the back of the bus, and Adam drove the bus off the cliff. He was, rep- he was responsible for the fallen, devastating condition that we're all born into in this sin-havoced world. Your representative made a decision and it has affected you. You say, well, if I had the opportunity, rather than Adam, I wouldn't have sinned. Put me back in that garden. Let me try. It's not fair for God for you to do this to me because if you had put me back, then I wouldn't have done what he did. So you can't put what he did to my account no way, I, I would have I would have obeyed God. Well, that's kind of like the Americans losing to the Jamaicans in the Olympics in the 1,600-meter relay race. And I say, okay, that's not fair. They didn't really beat us. They beat those four guys, but they didn't beat me. Put me in that race, and I'll show them what I can do. Are you serious, Brian? <laughs> I'm going to beat the, the four fastest Americans alive on the planet? No way. And are we serious to think that we could actually do better than Adam? Think about Adam. He was the best the human race had to offer. He was newly created. He was unfallen. He was unravished by sin. And he lived in paradise. We don't match up to any of those things. We don't live in paradise. And we are fallen. How how is God going to take me, put me back in the garden, and I'm going to do any better than someone who had no sin or no corrupt nature like I do? So if anyone ever had a fighting chance against sin, it was Adam, and he fell, and we fell in him. So just as the act of Adam brought condemnation and death to the human race, the flip side is this. Jesus Christ has brought justification and life to all those united to him. Let's look at some verses that I think state it pretty clearly. Verse 16 
says the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Or verse 17 speaks about those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. They will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Or verse 18, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Or verse 19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now verses 18 and 19 are probably the clearest of all. Through one act of righteousness, it's talking about Christ's righteous life culminating in the cross. Through that, there resulted justification of life to all men. So on the one hand, Adam earned condemnation and death and passed that along to all those who proceed from him and are united to him. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ earned justification and life, and he passes that on to all those who are in him who proceed from him. Now, this passage also uses this expression much more. We took a look at that last week. It comes up in Romans 5.9 and 5.10. But it also comes up in verses 15 and 17. Now, what does Paul mean? For example, verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Or verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What is this much more phrase intended to communicate to us? Well, it must have the same meaning that it did in the earlier part of the same chapter. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So much more doesn't mean much more abundantly. It means much more certainly. Do you see that from verse 10? If God did the hardest thing by reconciling enemies, much more certainly is he going to do the easy thing of keeping friends who have been reconciled close to him and bring them into his eternal kingdom. So that must be what Paul means in verses 15 and 17. He means, if it is certain that Adam has brought death into the human race, then it's even more certain that Christ is going to bring everlasting life to those who trust him. Now, is it certain that Adam brought death into the, into the world? I mean, how could he even contradict that one? Every single person who lives dies. You can't even go to a, a people group on the face of the planet and find a perfect society anywhere. There's lawbreakers. I mean, most societies have jails or prisons or ways of meeting out punishment to, to violators or people who are evil. I mean, it's rampant throughout the entire world. Wherever you go, you find evil and sin and death everywhere. And the Bible says all this stems from Adam. But if it's certain that Adam brought in sin and death, it's even more certain, believer, that you are going to receive life through him and his righteousness. You can be even more certain that Jesus will do that for you than what Adam did originally for you. Now, what's Paul's conclusion to the whole chapter? Look at verse 20 and 21. He said, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Why in the world would God want transgressions to increase? Well, he tells us, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God wanted to display his abounding grace to this fallen race of men. He wanted to show his grace. So he brought the law in, transgression increased, and now he has an opportunity to display his abounding grace to this this world. But why would God want to display his abounding grace? Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is wanting to put the glory of his grace on display to this world. God is all about making himself known. That's what it means for him to display his glory, is to put his attributes on display so people can see it. 
And actually, that's the most loving thing God can do. Is to give himself to you. Show himself to you. And that's what he's doing through bringing the law in. And he's doing that so that grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. We can all see that sin reigns in death. We see it all around us. We see graveyards everywhere. We see people dying up in the campfire. We see people dying in wars and and being murdered. And it happens all over the planet. That's obvious, right? Well, even as sin reigned in death, God wants to show that grace reigns through righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account through faith, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is even more certain than the first. So God is wanting us to see something about himself. Now, Paul teaches us pretty much the same idea over in chapter 9 of Romans. Let's look at a couple verses over there. It's Romans 9, 22 and 23. He says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And why would God not just instantly destroy these vessels of wrath? Well, he tells us in verse 23, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God wants to display his mercy, his sovereign mercy to this this fallen world in Adam. He wants to show his goodness and his graciousness and his glory to his people. And so he puts up with these vessels of destruction because it gives him an opportunity to display the richness and the glory of his grace. And that's what we also see over in Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 4 to 6, the Bible says, Just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise, here it comes. Here is his whole reason for choosing a people. To make them blameless in his sight. It was to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's what God is aiming at. That's what he's wanting to display to this world. The glorious riches of his sovereign grace. So Paul concludes Romans and it's like you're, you're listening to this symphony and all the drums are beating and all the cymbals are crashing as he comes to verse 20 and 21. And he says God is wanting to put his glorious grace on display. And he did it through a man, Jesus Christ. Now, let me talk first of all to people here who may not be saved, the unsaved. Not only does condemnation and death come on you because of Adam, but justification and life can come to you because of Christ. And you say, I don't feel it's fair for God to damn me for the actions of Adam. That's not right. Well, you know what? It's also not fair for God to save you because of the actions of Jesus. That's not fair. There's nothing fair about either one. God isn't really interested in what's fair. He's interested in glorifying his son. That's what God is uppermost concerned about. To bring glory to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through saving a multitude of guilty sinners. So, if we want to reject this idea of damnation because of Adam, you're going to have to also reject salvation through Christ. Because they come on exactly the same principle. And if you reject salvation through Christ, you're going to have to save yourself. Good luck. Start working and work real hard and never stop and be perfect at it the rest of your life. And somehow you're going to have to get rid of the sins you've already committed without Jesus to help you. Okay, you have no hope. The only hope for this human race is the representation of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope men have. Christ is the only hope. Just we, I love the song we sang this morning. He is our only hope. Do, do you, do you, I hope you see a sense of desperation. The Bible paints a, a very, very bleak, desperate condition for people outside of Christ. 
It's not like they have a slim hope that somehow they can do it on their own. They have none. Absolutely no hope at all. Christ is the only hope for this world. And somehow, my friend, if you're not saved, you're going to have to get out of Adam and into Christ. You have to. There's no other choice. There's no other way of salvation. You have to get into Christ. But how does a person do that? Well, we have a little hint of it in verse 17, where it says, If by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive, and just circle that word receive, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, they're going to reign in life through Jesus Christ. To get out of Adam and into Christ, you have to receive the abundance of his grace. How do you do that? How does a beggar receive gifts that are offered to him? He stretches out his hands and he takes them, right? God is offering this fallen race of sinners salvation, eternal life, righteousness, justification. He offers it to you. His hands are open. And sadly, one after another after another turns away and walks the other direction. They have no heart for what God is offering them. They don't want it. They don't want Jesus. And so God in his mercy begins to turn one and turn another and turn another. And they receive the abundance of grace that he has offered to them. See, to receive something is simply talking about faith. Faith is the hand of the beggar that receives the bread extended to him. And my friend, you have to have faith in Christ if you're going to be saved. You must trust him. And in order to receive something, you have to let go of what your hands are already full of. That's called repentance, turning loose of what your hands are already filled with. And faith is grabbing on to Jesus. That's how salvation takes place. I let go of all these other things that I thought were so precious and so valuable, they're, they're, they're like dung. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> and when I see it with God's eyes, why would I ever want that? And I hold on to the most precious treasure of all, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said it's like a man who's going through a field and he stumbles over something and he, he starts looking around and he finds a treasure and he, he kind of digs around it. Wow, this thing is is valuable. And so he takes all the money he has in the whole world and he says, I want to buy the field. Why? Because he wants dirt? No, he wants the treasure. <laughs> Jesus is the treasure. Nothing compares to Jesus. And this man sells, sells everything he has so he can have that treasure. And he does it with joy. He's not regretful. He's not upset. Oh, I have no money left. He's happy because he got the treasure. If you're not saved today, get the treasure. Turn loose of whatever you're trying to hold on to and grab on to Jesus with all your heart and never let him go because he is your only hope. One day, on the great judgment day, all of us are going to be standing there before Christ and you won't have any excuse that no one ever told you what you must do to be saved. On November 18th, 2018, in that little tiny house church in Rancho Cordova, some fool stood up and he told you what you had to do to be saved, and you rejected it. Don't let that be on your head when you come before Christ on Judgment Day. Flee from the wrath to come and find yourself in Christ. Believe. Trust Him. The gospel is for you. Lay hold of it. Well, what does this passage have to say to those of us who are saved? Number one, I think it should give us compassion for people around us because it teaches us that all those broken people that you run into that are ravished by sin and devastated and their lives are messed up, that's you too at one point. Where did God find you? He found you in the same broken, ravished condition. Your life was messed up. You had your hands full of these chocolate candies when a $500 bill was laying on the table and you didn't have the sense to drop the candy to get the $500 bill. See what I'm saying? We we're all foolish, messed up, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, dead in our trespasses and sins. So it should teach us to have real compassion on people rather than judging people. May God give us a heart of love for people that, that it sends us to them and, and we love them and we extend the grace of God to them and we say, lay hold of it. For your own sake, lay hold of it. 
And it should also teach us one other thing. It should teach us to be busy giving the gospel of grace to lost people. People don't need a gospel of do, do, do. They need a gospel of done. And that's what we have to give them. So if you're on the street preaching or if you're going door to door witnessing or if you're talking to your employees or your neighbors or your friends or your relatives, let's make sure that we're, the gospel we tell people about is not a gospel of you've got to do this and that and the other thing and then maybe God will finally accept you. No, our gospel of Christ has already done everything necessary to save your soul. It's done. The work's finished. It's completed. Put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done. Come to him. Embrace him. Find yourself in him. That's all you need. That's the gospel we have to give. It's a gospel of free grace. Not of works. Of free grace. And if a person embraces it, God saves them from the depth to the uttermost. So let's take his words on our lips for the rest of our lives. Let's be looking for ways that we can go to lost, broken people and bring them the most glorious message the world has ever known. And it's for us right here in this chapter. Is Christ your representative this morning? Are you in Christ? Are you attached to him, connected to him, vitally united by faith to the Son of God? I pray that's so. Because, my friends, we have no hope outside of him. Lord, we thank you so much for being that glorious Savior to us this morning. We thank you for salvation and, and, and the risen one and the crucified one. Oh, Lord, may you make the truth clear from this passage. I'm praying now, Lord, for, for people in this room that have never really been born again. They've never trusted Jesus. God, pour out your spirit on them. May they not be able to walk flippantly out of this room as though nothing had transpired here, as though this is all fun and games. God, would you cause your Holy Spirit to put a pressure upon their soul, help them to see the danger that they're in and to flee from it to Jesus. And Lord, help us to love lost people and to bring them the glorious gospel of grace to them. We pray through the beautiful Son of of your love, Jesus. Amen.